change is inevitable and can often be chaotic. However, when it's fully organized, change can be dynamic, powerful, and progressive. The Organizing for Change podcast will help you move from a spectator to a difference maker and will assist you in bringing positive change to your community, your city, and perhaps of most importance, you. Hosted by Amanda Decker, drug-free community substance use prevention coordinator, mom to many, entrepreneur, and fan of great conversation, Organizing for Change is heard in over 40 countries and every state in the USA. We are delighted that you've joined us today, because after all, we do this for you, and that will never change. Here's Amanda. Welcome to episode 46 of the Organizing for Change podcast where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. If you'd like to be an insider to the Organizing for Change podcast, join our email list. You'll be the first to know about upcoming episodes, and you will get a summary after each episode with links to anything we've talked about emailed right to your inbox. Just click on the link in the notes to join our community today. We move at our own peril if we decide to short circuit the conversations, the emotions that people have about the things that they're talking about, whether it's the situation in Newtown or whether it's about COVID-19 or whether it's about um, systemic racism and social injustice or whether it's about drug addiction and how to deal with, with drug addiction and the challenges around that. The extent to which we sh- we we leave out or push aside these emotions is the extent to which we short circuit these conversations. The extent to which we short circuit these conversations is the extent to which we deny people their reality. The extent to which we deny people their reality is the extent to which we deny them their dignity, their sense of humanness, their humanity, who they are as individuals and who we are collectively as a people. That was a clip from today's guest, Rich Harwood, president and founder of the Harwood Institute. After working on more than 20 political campaigns and two highly respected nonprofits, Rich Harwood set out to create something entirely different. He founded what is now known as the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation in 1988 when he was just 27 years old. Soon after, he wrote the groundbreaking report, Citizen and Politics. A View from Main Street, the first national study to uncover that Americans did not feel apathetic about politics, but instead held a deep sense of anger and disconnection. Over the past 30 years, Rich has innovated and developed a new philosophy and practice of how communities can solve shared problems, create a culture of shared responsibility, and deepen people's civic faith. The Harvard practice of turning outward has spread to all 50 U.S. states and is being used in 40 countries. Rich has invested his career in revitalizing the nation's hardest hit communities, transforming the world's largest organizations, and reconnecting institutions like newsrooms and schools to society. In Newtown, Connecticut, after the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, Rich led the process for the community to collectively decide the fate of the school building. Rich is an inspiring, sought-after speaker 
who regularly keynotes major conferences and events. He appears regularly on me major media outlets. He's written four books, scores of articles, and numerous groundbreaking reports. He's also written numerous studies and articles that have appeared on national media, including MSNBC, NPR, CNN's Inside Politics, The News Hour with Jim Lair, Special Report with Britt Hume, and C-SPAN. And now, my conversation with Rich Harwood. Well, after looking at the elections this week, wow, I just started looking at the numbers of the stats for how many people voted for which candidate. And I walked away thinking just how incredibly divided we are right now as a country. And not just politically, but I began thinking about all the issues, whether it's wear a mask or don't wear a mask, political, climate, you name it, we're divided. And as somebody who works in the prevention coalition field, our job is to bring people together to work on complex issues. And it becomes really difficult because this divide exists among people and we are challenged to work with people. That's part of coalition work. So our guest today is Rich Harwood, who is the president and founder of the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation. Over 30 years, he's had experience in this nonprofit and part of the mission statement of their organization is to have a world where community is a common and enduring enterprise and where everyone can come together amidst their differences to endure and solve the complex challenges that affect us all. And I thought about the complex challenges and thought you would be a great person to talk about this. So welcome, Rich, to the show. Amanda, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. I first kind of dug into the work that you did in Sandy Hook, and what an incredible challenge. It's my understanding that you were called in to work on some of the issues that were at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the divisions that you encountered and just how you started with such a tragedy to bring the community together to work um, on some of the issues that were concerning. Yeah, you know, the, the massacre happened in, I think it was December, 2012. Um, uh, a young man, Adam Lanza, who was 20 years old, walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School and massacred 21st graders, six-year-olds and, um, and six, um, six uh, adults. And, um, you know, uh, in February, I got a call, or January, I got a call just a few weeks later, I got a call from the mayor, essentially the first selectman of of Sandy Hook, of, of Newtown, Connecticut, um, essentially the mayor, the chief executive, and asked me whether or not I'd be willing to come and both design and lead a process by which the community could decide what to do with the elementary school. You know, it was a crime scene. And the question was, do they go back to the school? Do they raise it and rebuild on that spot? Do they build a new school someplace else. And, you know, Amanda, at first I said, no. Um, I said, I, I don't know if I'm equipped to do this. There's no roadmap to do it. There's no process to do it. And then I started to think honestly about all the work I had done in communities like Flint, Michigan, that had lost 30,000 auto jobs when I first started to work there, or, or Youngstown, or Mobile, Alabama, or I had a 
um, uh, an illness as a child um, where I experienced um, severe trauma as well. And so I thought about all those experiences where I had worked on trauma um, and thought that, that actually I was called to do this work and that I couldn't say no. And so when I went there to start to work in February, what I realized really quickly was that this really, as much as this was about a school building, really it was fundamentally, and I think the folks that you, your listeners who work in prevention know this, that it was really about whether or not the community could pivot from trauma and despair to healing and hope. And this was the first public um, decision that the community had to make um, about what to do. And and just real quickly, you know, it was not a foregone conclusion about what would happen. The the uh, the chief executive had put together a task force of 28 elected officials from four different governing boards. They didn't even get along on their governing boards, let alone get along together. Um, the community, um, there was disagreement about whether or not they should even be having this, this conversation this soon after the massacre. Um, and... Um, and so um, we started out on a journey of about a four or five month process to figure out, um, could we decide how to move forward in a way that would help the community not only make a decision, but heal at the same time. Tell me more about that four to five month process. Did that look like you sitting down with individuals? Did that look like groups of people getting together? Was it different things that you walked them through? You know, it was interesting. Again, there was no roadmap. So I decided early on that, first of all, what people, we were working with this task force of 28 elected officials. They were the decision makers. Everything that we did was in the city chamber um, room, council room, and every meeting we held had to be in public. We wanted absolute transparency. And so every meeting we held, Amanda, was covered by CNN, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. There were loads of television and newspaper and radio um, journalists covering every move that we made. And so what um, I designed was a process that would give folks a container in which they felt safe enough to know that there were a series of steps we were gonna try to take together, um, that uh, no matter what decision we made, that uh, there was no perfect solution for an imperfect situation, for an inexplicable situation. So we probably wouldn't feel good about it, no matter where we ended up. And then also that we had to leave room, and I think this is really important for folks who do this type of work. Um, we had to leave room to discuss not only the merits of what to do, but the embedded emotions that were running throughout these discussions. Um, the sense of deep sorrow that people felt, the sense of grief that people felt, the sense of guilt that um, survivors felt, the sense of um, how do you put something back together that is so fundamentally and profoundly broken, um, the sense that, you know, as you work through issues that are this difficult and this trying, um, that we had to leave room to keep coming back to things we thought we had resolved because we, we came to recognize, the group came to recognize that as much as we thought we had resolved certain things, we we're just starting to get into them. Mm -hmm. And we we're just peeling away the layers upon layers upon layers that we had to deal with. I'll never forget, Amanda, at the very end, there was a gentleman on the task force who was so 
filled with certitude and certainty about what we needed to do. And he said at the end, you know, Rich, I've been sure all along about what we should do, but here I am and I am so unsure about what we should do moving forward. I am so unsure about how I feel about all the things that we've talked about. I am so unsure about what the right next or the best next move is for us. And, um, and I think he reflected a lot of, of what people were wrestling with. When you were just talking, I can't help but think that so often many are our, our decisions when we come to this difficult work or dealing with people who disagree, we make decisions based out of fear. And you were just talking about how you made people feel safe that they could have this conversation and be able to say, you know, express those fears and get those things out on the table. It wasn't like just cover up this and move on to the next thing. And what would you say the value is in giving people that space and that time to process that? How have you seen that play out by just asking people to slow down and not make those decisions quickly? I think we move at our own peril if we decide to short circuit the conversations, the emotions that people have about the things that they're talking about, whether it's the situation in Newtown or whether it's about COVID-19 or whether it's about um, systemic racism and social injustice or whether it's about drug addiction and how to deal with, with drug addiction and the challenges around that. The extent to which we, sh we, we leave out or push aside these emotions is the extent to which we short circuit these conversations. The extent to which we short circuit these conversations is the extent to which we deny people their reality. The extent to which we deny people their reality is the extent to which we deny them their dignity, their sense of humanness, their humanity, who they are as individuals and who we are collectively as a people. And so in any number of the issues that you mentioned when you began um, the podcast today um, in the introduction, uh, we have to leave room. You know, I've said to people, if you want to deal with systemic racism and social injustice, then let's be clear. We need to leave room for the rage that people feel, the anger that they feel. And not only that, we need to leave room for the sorrow there is so much lost. You know, if you're a black, a black or a brown person, there is so much that has been lost, lost in your own life, lost in your parents' lives, lost in your grandparents. Mm -hmm. It's generational, it's historical, it's profound, it's real, it, it, it exists today and it existed yesterday. And so there's deep sorrow, there's loss, it's mm -hmm. profound. And so we've got to make room. You know, when I started working in Flint, Michigan, just really quickly, as I said, they'd lost 30,000 auto jobs in just a short few years before we started working there. And I remember holding the first conversations with residents in the community. And I remember to this day, vividly, as we're talking now, I can still remember the rage that people felt how betrayed they felt by General Motors, how betrayed they felt by leaders of their community, how screwed they felt by these institutions. They had been sold a bill of goods that was false. And that sense of betrayal, you know, you couldn't ask them where they wanted to go 
unless you could first talk about where they are today and where they have been. You know, there's a Walter Brueggemann, who who's a religious uh, studies writer, um, who's written a lot about the prophets. Um, I'm a person of faith, so you know, um, you know, the prophets often talked about imagination that we need to reimagine where we can go as a society because we have been wayward in our ways. But what he points out about the prophets is they also said that in order to be able to reimagine where you want to go, you first must know where you are. You first must know where you are. And this is true for someone suffering from drug addiction, as it is if we're going to deal with systemic racism, as it is if we're going to deal with COVID-19, as it was when we dealt with the issues in Newtown, Connecticut. Mm. My friend, uh, Jeff Linkenbach from the Montana Institute, he has a um, system of change that he created. He always says spirit first. And he talks exactly what you're saying, how coalitions sometimes want to just jump right into the science and let's just fix the problem. But just like you said, you got to address where are we at first. So that's so good. And not only that, Amanda, we've got to, you know, I, I believe in data. I'm sure a lot of the folks that work in coalitions, the work that, that you do and others do, you you know, data is really critical. But as as you and your listeners know, um, data doesn't tell us the human story. It doesn't tell us about people's lived experiences. It doesn't tell us about the single mom with two kids, about what kind of life and lives she's trying to create for her two kids against enormous obstacles. It doesn't tell us about her fears of her two kids maybe walking to school um, in the dark because there aren't street lights on their pathway. It doesn't tell us about those two children, you know, when they put their heads down on a pillow at night. You know, when we were all kids, you you probably remember this. I, I talk about hope this way. Hope to me is not a campaign slogan or a bumper sticker slogan. It's defined as when those two kids put their head down on their pillow right before you close your eyes, like we all did as children. And like we probably all still do as adults. Do you actually believe that tomorrow can be better than today? That's my definition of hope. And so data is important, but just dumping in, jumping into the data or jumping into the science can't tell us about people's lived experiences. And we need to combine the two of them together to be able to make more intentional choices and judgments about what to do. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the person though that says that's all touchy-feely stuff like that just sounds so I'm not buying it um what I say to them is uh uh what are your aspirations for your community and they will start to tell me I want a community that's safe I want a community where people have opportunities I want a community where children feel loved I want a community where we can deal with with our environmental challenges. And and I might say, well, what are some of the challenges in dealing with those? And they might say, well, we don't know how to work together in our community. We, um, people demand um, immediate action and they're unwilling to make trade-offs that um, we don't trust one another, that we don't have leaders or institutions that um, are connected deeply enough to our communities. And what I say to them is data can tell you some of the, can give you insights into some of those things for Mm -hmm. sure. Sure. But data can't tell you about a lot of those things. Mm. 
They can't tell you what a mom or dad wants for their kids in terms of education and whether or not they think their kids are getting a fair shot. They can't tell you um, whether or not um, if you want kids who are loved, whether or not those kids feel that there are adults in their lives who love them unconditionally. It can't tell you um, about if there are environmental issues, not only that maybe something is contaminated in their community, but about how that contamination affects people's lives and whether or not people um, uh, uh, feel at risk, whether or not they feel safe, mm -hmm. whether or not they believe that these problems can be solved. Um, we need to combine both these things. It's not touchy-feely. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is what I, I call this public knowledge. This public knowledge is invaluable. It's, it gives you power to make more intentional judgments and choices about what matters to people and how that relates to the data and how you can really focus on what kind of change is, is necessary. And importantly, Amanda, what kind of change is possible in the short term, the medium term, and the long term? Speaking of such, you have an incredible story of the work you did in Clark County, Kentucky, about exactly this. Would you mind telling our listeners just a story and just the change that's happened? It's it's amazing. You know, when we first started working there, this is a rural community, and they're sort of in between Appalachia and um, the the, uh, the Blue Ridge, you know, the uh, horse country, um, and um, uh and when we first started working there, what we found was a community that was looking back to reclaim its past. It was stuck. It was divided by um, race, by geography. Um, it suffered an opioid crisis. Its children felt abandoned, um, uh, even though they went to Blue Ribbon schools. Um, people told us that um, efforts started and always stalled out and stopped. And so they had little faith in their ability to solve problems together. There were tons of public meetings held, but people didn't feel seen mm. or heard. It was a community that wasn't working very well for people. And um, as we started to do our work there, you know, we, what we do is we develop these public innovators in this practice of being turned outward that we, that we call it. And we embed it in organizations and networks so that communities can both address the fault lines the challenges that they face and strengthen their civic culture so that they have the capacity and understand that they have already had the know-how and the will and the wisdom um, and the innate capacities to shape their own future. And so in working there, if you fast forward two and a half years, they created all sorts of change um, in terms of drug addiction, which I'll come back to, in terms of um, lifting up children in terms of dealing with race and their history of slavery and moving forward in terms of bridging divides in helping lift up people, um, um, gay and lesbian folks, um, transgender folks, um, black folks, brown folks who felt isolated in the community. So this is a community now when COVID-19 hit before they would have stayed fragmented and isolated, they got 60 service providers to come around a table twice a week over Zoom, and they are acting collectively to not only address COVID-19, but to act on other systemic issues around drug addiction, homelessness, education issues, um, people falling through the cracks that no one could ever have imagined before this work began. It's really a remarkable story, and it's some of the fastest 
change that I've experienced in the 30, 35 years I've been doing this work. It's incredible. It's amazing just to see what happens when you have people that know where to go with something rather than just kind of have meaning after meaning after meaning. So it's right. impressive, yeah. And going back to your question before about the, the soft stuff or the touchy-feely stuff, you know, why did this work? Well, yeah, it worked for a variety of reasons. One is that there were local individuals and local leaders who had the courage to step forward and say, we're going to do something different. Mm -hmm. They were not the usual suspects in a lot of cases. It worked because they engaged community residents to understand what were people's aspirations for their lives and their community. And they began to act on it. So when it came to drug addiction and they started to engage, you know, they have, they have an opioid and, and meth challenge that's just growing by leaps and bounds. It was sort of ground zero in the country for some of these challenges. And, you know, the folks that they engaged in conversations about this who were themselves addicted to drugs, um, substance abuse, uh, said, we want a drug-free community. We want a community where we have opportunities. We want a community where we feel safe to come out from the shadows. Mm -hmm. We want a community where we're not judged so much and where we can actually have a sense of dignity. And this propelled the people who were working on this to start all sorts of new efforts that engage folks who are suffering from drug addiction to give them a hand up and their their numbers now, their, their treatment numbers are better, um, their success numbers are better, people's lives are better, um, because they started first with people and where they were starting with, they had data, but the data wasn't telling them what they needed to know mm -hmm. about what people were really looking for. And what you were just saying too about that common dream that everybody had, it sounds like, I mean, you can have people from all different just political point views and different ideas. But when you start talking about the dream, we all want a community where our kids feel safe. We all, and I love how you use that framework to talk about what, okay, yeah, we don't agree on all these things, but let's talk about the dream, what we do agree on. Right. And if I can just make one quick distinction, so your yeah. listeners know, because I think this is important. So we make a distinction between um, shared aspirations Right. So if you think about your aspirations, like mm -hmm. if you just think about your own, they come from your gut and they project out. If you ask someone their aspirations and, and I would encourage your, your, your listeners to do this at work or at church or synagogue or mosque or or with their neighbors. And someone's aspirations always come from their gut. And here's the thing. They're always actionable. They're doable and they're achievable. And I want to draw a distinction between that and when we focus just on problems. Problems pull us in a cul-de-sac of toxic discussion where we say, why do these problems exist? You know, and then everyone gives a laundry list. <laughs> and then they want to know why haven't been, they've been solved. And when they haven't been solved, they want to know who was responsible for solving them. And when they want to know that, they want to know, well, then who can I blame? And before you know it, <laughs> we're in the same toxic discussions we've been having in this country for far too long. When we don't do that, there's another alternative we do, which is we do visioning exercises, you know, where we put the little yellow dots up on the newsprint and say, you know, don't talk too much, Amanda, just put the little yellow dot up and we come up with these visions and they're usually printed on glossy paper and for color and we wonder what happens to them, nothing. Mm 
<laughs> and we ask why. And there's lots of reasons why, but there's only one I want to say today. They're utopian visions that don't hold enough relevance to people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. So I want to make a distinction between focusing on problems, focusing on utopian visions, and focusing on shared aspirations. And I believe we need to move our conversations to shared aspirations that are much more pragmatic and practical, that relate to people's daily lives. And also, lastly, when we talk about our shared aspirations, we realize that no one organization, no one leader, no one group can solve these on their own. We need each other. And not only that, we as citizens are implicated in the solutions as well. And so we've got to take shared responsibility for the challenges that we face. I want to make sure that before we close out, we get a little bit of time to just talk about your book. You wrote a book called Stepping Forward, A Positive Practical Path to Transform Our Communities and Lives. And I just was looking even through the description. I did read a bit of it, but it just said, how do we bring people together when our society is breaking apart? Mm-hmm. What a great book for this time. Tell me about what inspired you to write this book and what's the message that you hope our listeners get out of this book? So what inspired me were actually the people I've worked with in communities all across the country and the incredible things, whether it was in Newtown or Flint or Mobile, Alabama, um, or Las Vegas or Youngstown or folks in Australia or Canada or other countries the ways in which I saw people literally step forward and what were the underlying conditions that enabled them to do that, which is really what our work is about. And so I wanted to write a book. This was pre, pre COVID, pre the unfortunate death of George Floyd and the, and the unrest that we saw in communities all across the country. I wanted to write a book that even then said, we don't have to accept what's happening in our country. There is an alternate path. We don't have to ex- accept the despair, the acrimony, the divisiveness. We can actually create a more hopeful, inclusive, just, equitable, fair path forward. And in order to do that, we're going to need to reimagine and recreate our lives and our community and our society in a practical way, in a pragmatic way. This book is a pragmatic book. And, and it's a book about how people in communities all across this country and elsewhere have done it. And I wanted to illuminate that there is a different way forward and that no one's going to come save us. We've got to do this. And, and last thing I'll say about this is that the work is as, as much as we need change in Washington DC and, and we just had some change, as much as we need change in different state capitals, we need that change. I think the most profound change we need is the change in our local communities because it's in our local communities that we can turn outward toward one another. It's in our local communities that we can see and hear one another again. It's in our local communities that we can afford one another to the dignity that is a birthright it's non-negotiable that we need to, and we don't do this now. It's in our local communities that we can actually come together and build things together and see, see what we build together and 
feel the sense of possibility we get from that and the sense of agency we get from that and the serendipity that occurs because as we build things, we recognize, we, we discover new things that we could do that we never could have dreamed of before they were unimaginable before. Mm-hmm. All these things can happen in our local communities. And I think our local communities are the foundation of our country. And I think we need, this is where we're gonna to need to come together and, and bridge the divides you were talking about at the very beginning. I think it's where we need to come together and restore our belief in ourselves and in one another that we can get things done together. And I think it's where we can, we can build, we can make hope real for people in their daily lives in ways that they and see and feel and experience. I think about the people listening on the other end and obviously one first step would be snag your book um, and just there's so much more I know that you don't have the time to say today, but what would you say would be a practical first step for us as coalition leaders? We're going to be having our next community meeting and we're going to be with people all around the table who might not see things out of either tensions, you know, what would you say? What advice would you give to us? I would say go to our website and download a tool. It's mm-hmm. called the aspirations exercise or something like that. Three questions. Mm-hmm. And I would start your meeting with these three questions. What are our aspirations for our community? Which immediately takes you outside of your organization to focus on what are we trying to achieve in the community? What kind of community are we trying to, to create together? Second, So these are similar questions to what I said earlier, right? Second, what are the challenges that are in the way of us achieving our aspirations? Not solving problems, but achieving our aspirations. Third, what needs to change in order for us to move forward together? And I can guarantee you, Amanda, I can guarantee you, that even though people don't see eye to eye in some of these challenges, even though that there are people who are worried about protecting their turf around that table, even though there are people who are taking credit for things they didn't do or they ought not to take in the first place, even though there are people competing for grant dollars, even though there are people who are saying they're gonna work in collaboratives and applying for grants or getting money, but they know damn well they're not gonna to collaborate together or cooperate together. Right? We all know these things. Let's just say it. Let's just be honest with each other. All this stuff is happening every single day. I'm not asking people to put their self-interest aside. I'm asking people to find out where our interests come together mm-hmm. so that we have mutual interests, shared interests, and can take shared responsibility for our communities and move forward. Heck, we don't even have to like each other. We just need to work together. And if we really care about the people who we seek to serve, We will find ways to work together despite our differences, despite the fact that we don't like each other all the time, despite that we compete on other things, despite that I want credit more than you get. That's okay. We can deal with that stuff. But let's get moving and solve these problems and challenges that people face. And let's create a community that reflects the best in us and the best of us, not the worst in us and the worst of us. So that's where I would ask you to start. Rich, this has been such a great conversation. I've learned so much personally, but I wanted to make sure if there's anything that I didn't ask you that you still just wanted to say or just any thoughts that you had that we didn't get to. Um, just, um, I would say that, you know, I, I hope people get the book Stepping Forward, but I, I say that in part because we have another book coming out early next year um, called Unleashed, which is about uh, how communities took these steps uh, to create 
uh, and spread change in their communities and make hope real for people. And, and the steps they actually took, we list 10 characteristics about how the communities actually did this that every community can do. And it shows that uh, you can start small and grow your efforts to be big over time, which mm -hmm. is what all these communities did. So long as you get in, mo so long as you turn outward, so long as you get in motion, so long as you create a new trajectory for hope, um, mm -hmm. the work can grow and spread. It's like a positive, you know, we talk about COVID as being a contagion. This is a positive contagion that we can spread in our communities. It's possible. Mm -hmm. And there are proven ways to do it, and so I just want to I just want to mention that because that's another resource that's going to be coming out in the in the coming months. And I just want to say for the listeners out there who are just like, ah, oh, Amanda just did this because she wanted to push a book. Like my husband is an author, and I know that authors make next to nothing. You've got to be really passionate about the message that you want to share with communities to be an author. And it just makes me like so appreciative that you are taking this message and spreading it to others. And for the work that you all are doing, it's incredible. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. And, and I look forward to following your work and the work of folks who, who listen to your great podcast. Thank you for listening to the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to empower coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring positive change to their communities. To learn more about us or to get the show notes from today's episode emailed to your inbox, log on to our website. We hope you are inspired by today's show and keep up the great work. See you next time.